Chapters One and Two of When Shadows Die, a sequel to Love's Bitterest Cup. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. When Shadows Die, a sequel to Love's Bitterest Cup by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter One Meeting and Parting. The Earl of Enderby and his sister, Mrs. Force, acting under the directions of the Earl's doctor, now set out for Germany, and in due time reached Baden-Baden. Their apartments, which had been secured by telegram, were ready for them. They had one night's rest from the journey, and were waiting for their breakfast to be served in their private parlor, when they were surprised by the entrance of Mr. Force and all his party. The family had been separated scarcely three months. Yet to see them meet, a spectator might think they had been parted for three years. They soon paired off. Mr. Force and his wife sat down together on a corner sofa and began to exchange confidences. Leonidas and Odalite stood together at the window of the room, looking out upon the busy scene on the street, or rather seeming to do so, for they were really talking earnestly together on the subject of their troubled present and uncertain future. They had not been separated for one day during their travels, but they were to say good-bye to each other very soon. It might be for years, and it might be forever. And so they seized every opportunity for a tat a tat Wynnette and Elva hovered around their mother, in their delight at seeing her again. The invalid earl sat for a while alone and forgotten, until little Rosemary Hedge, who was also overlooked in the family reunion, drew a hassock to the side of his easy-chair, sat down and laid her little curly black head on his knee. The action was full of pathos and confiding tenderness. The earl laid his hand on the little head and ran his thin white fingers through the black curls, but neither spoke or needed to speak, so well the man and the child understood each other. "'Leonidas, my boy,' called Abel Forrest from his corner, "'I wish you would go and see if we can get rooms for us all here. This should have been seen to sooner.' "'You need not stir, young sir,' said the earl, and, turning to his brother-in-law, he added, "'Your apartments are secured, Force. As soon as I received your telegram, saying that you would join me here, I sent off a dispatch to secure them for you. I hardly need to remind you that you are all my guests while we are together. But you traveled by the night express. You must have done so to reach this place so early in the day, so you will want to go to your rooms. After you have refreshed yourself, join me here at breakfast.' Leah rose at the earl's request, and pulled at the bell-knob with the vigor lent by his impatience at being called from the side of his beloved, and which soon brought a servant to the room. "'Show these ladies and gentlemen to the apartments prepared for them,' said the earl. The man, with many bows, preceded the party from the room, and conducted them to a large family suit of rooms on the third floor, overlooking the new promenade. The travellers remained some weeks at Baden-Baden. The baths were doing the earl much good, Mr. Force also needed their healing powers. Some were on his travels with the young people, not having his wife to look after him. He had contracted rheumatism. He could not exactly tell when or where or how, whether from exposure or rain and mist on the mountains, or from fishing on the lakes, or from sleeping in damp sheets, and drinking the sour wine of the country, or from all these causes put together. He could not say, so gradually and insidiously had the malady crept upon him, taking its chronic and least curable form. He had not mentioned one word of this in any of his letters, nor had he spoken of it on his arrival. 
Indeed, as he afterward explained, never having had any experience to guide me, I did not recognize the malady at first, but merely took the feeling of heaviness in all my frame for over-fatigue, and even when that heaviness, being increased, became a general aching, I still thought it to be the effect of excessive fatigue. I was slow to learn, and slower to confess, that I had the special malady of age, rheumatism. However, I thank heaven it is not acute. It has never laid me up for a day, he added, laughing at his misfortune. Indeed, his troubles seldom kept him from making up parties for excursions to the various objects of interest in the town and its environs. Only when the days were both cold and wet, as is sometimes, not often the case in early autumn there, did Abel Force allow his young folks to go forth alone under the care of their mother and the escort of Leonidas, while he stayed within doors and played chess with the invalid earl. In this way the brothers-in-law became better acquainted and more attached. "'I wish you were an Englishman, Force,' said the earl one day, when he had just checkmated Abel and was resting on his laurels. "'Why?' not because I do not admire and respect your nationality, but simply for one reason. What is that? I will tell you. You know, of course, that your wife is my heiress, and if she survive me, will be my successor. Now, if you were an Englishman, you might get the reversion of your wife's title. I do not want it. I would not ask for it, nor even accept it. That is your Republican pride. Perhaps you are right. The old earldom has fallen to the distaff at length and it will be likely to stay there for some generations to come. For Alfreda, who will be a countess in her own right, has only daughters, which is a pity. And yet I don't know. I don't know. If those fellows at Exeter Hall and elsewhere get their way, in another century from this there will not be an emperor or a king, to say nothing of a little earl, to be found above ground on the surface of this fourth planet of the solar system, commonly called the Earth, and their bones will be as great a curiosity as those of the behemoth or the megatherium. Shall we have another game? And they played another, and yet another game, in perfect silence, interrupted only by the monosyllable ejaculations of technicalities connected with their play. The earl arose the winner. He often, not always, did. And so he was in high spirits to welcome the return of the excursionists to dinner. Another sad day of separation was drawing near. Lee was to leave them on the 11th of October, giving himself twenty days in which to travel from Baden-Baden in Germany to Washington in the United States. This was according to his uncle's advice. You might stay here until the 15th, or even until the 17th, and then reach Washington by the 31st, but it would, under the most favorable circumstances, be so close a shave as to be perilous to risk. An officer— Nay, a man may risk anything else in the world, Lee, but he must not risk his honor. You must report for duty at headquarters, punctually, on the 1st of November, at any cost of pain to yourself or to others. I know it, uncle. I know it, and I will do my duty. Never doubt me. I never do, my boy. And listen, Lee, if you are prompt, as you are sure to be, you may be able to obtain orders for the Mediterranean. And then, Lee, we shall see you again on this side." We will go to any port where your ship may be. Thank you, uncle. I shall try for orders to the Mediterranean, and I think I shall get them. You see, I have been to the west coast of Africa, and I have been to the Pacific coast, and I really think I may be favored now with orders to the Mediterranean. However, an officer must do his duty and obey, wherever he may be sent, if it were to Bering Straits, concluded Lee, with a dreary attempt at laughter. 
When the day of parting drew very near, and the depressed spirits of the lovers were evident to all who observed them, Mr. Force suddenly proposed that he and his odalite should accompany Lee to the steamer and see him off. This proposition was received by the two young people with grateful joy, as a short but most welcome reprieve from speedy death, or what seemed the same thing to them, speedy separation. It gave them two or three more days of precious life, or its equivalent, each other's society. They cheered up under it and looked more hopefully to the future, and in a few weeks more they decided they should be sure to see Lee again at some of the ports of the Mediterranean. When the day of parting came, Mr. Force, Leonidas, and Odalite took leave of the Earl and the ladies of their party, and left Baden-Baden for Ostend. There were not so many steamship lines or such facilities for rapid transit as in these days. Our three travelers went by rail to Ostend, thence by steamer to London, where they rested for one night, and thence by rail to Liverpool, which they reached just twelve hours before the sailing of the Africa for New York. Mr. Force and Odalite took leave of Lee on the deck of the steamer, and left it only among the very last that crossed the gangplank to the steam tender a moment before the farewell gun was fired and the Africa steamed out to sea. A crowd of people stood on the deck of the steamer, waving last farewells to another crowd on the deck of the tender, who waved back in response, and gazed until all distinct forms faded away in the distance. Among those on the tender, who stood and gazed and waved the longest, were Mr. Force and Odalite, who saw, or thought they saw, Lee's figure long after everybody else had given up the attempt to distinguish their own departing friends, in a mingled and fading view. CHAPTER Two, STARTLING NEWS When the tender reached the dock, Mr. Force touched his daughter's arm and whispered, "'We can get a train back to London, and catch the night steamer to Ostend, and be with your mother by tomorrow evening. Shall we do so, or shall we go down to Chester, and take a little tour through the Welsh mountains?' "'Oh, no, Papa dear, we will go home to Mamma, if you please,' said Odalite, who, amid all her grief, noticed the pale and worn look on the patient face that told of his silent suffering. "'Very well, my dear. I only thought it would divert you,' he replied. They drove from the docks to the Adelphi, where Mr. Force paid their hotel bill, took up the little luggage, and with his daughter drove on to the railway station, and caught the express train to London, a tidal train that connected with the Ostend night-boat. They reached Ostend the next day, and before night arrived at Baden-Baden, where they were received with gladness by their family, who did all that was possible to cheer the spirits of Odalite and raise her hopes for the future. They all remained in Germany until the first of November, and then set out to spend the winter on the banks of the Mediterranean. Their first halting-place was Genoa, where they awaited letters from Lee. The letters arrived at length, bringing good news. Lee was assigned to the man-of-war, Eagle, bound for the Mediterranean, bound direct for Genoa. Then, in perfect content, they settled down for the winter. The Earl's health was certainly improving in the mild air of sunny Italy, and his spirits were rallying in the society of his relatives, so he also decided to remain in Genoa. Before the end of November, the Eagle was in port, and midshipman force hastened to see his friends at their house on the Strada Balbi. He had been absent only seven weeks, yet they received him with as much joy as though they had not seen him for seven years. As long as his ship lay at anchor in the harbor, his friends remained in the Strada Balbi, and whenever he could get a day or a half-day off, he came to them. When the Eagle sailed for Nice, the family left Genoa for the same city, and took up their quarters at the Hotel de la Pax, and the same pleasant intercourse was resumed, 
and so the winter passed, and Mr. Force was beginning to contemplate the possibility of having his daughter freed from a merely nominal and most unfortunate marriage. To do this it would be necessary, according to his ideas of honor, that they should return to the state and the parish where the marriage ceremony had been nearly performed, but was finally interrupted. But there was no hurry, he thought. Lee was on the Mediterranean, and his duty would keep him there for two or three years longer. There was another source of occasional uneasiness, the political condition of the United States. Ever since the presidential election, in November, dissatisfaction had spread in certain sections of the country, and trouble seemed to be brewing. All this, coming through the newspapers to the knowledge of the absentees, gave them disturbance, but really not much, so thoroughly confident were they all in the safety of the Union and the grand destiny of the Republic. The clouds on the political horizon would vanish, and all would be well. No harm could come to the country, which was the Lord's city of refuge for the oppressed of all the world. They had not heard a word from or of Angus Anglesia since the Washington detective had traced him to Canada, and there lost him. Lee privately and most earnestly hoped that the villain had got himself sent to some state prison for life, or well hanged, which the midshipman thought would have been even better. At least, however, the family he had wronged so deeply seemed now to be well rid of him. But Lee expressed a strong wish that his uncle would return to Maryland in the spring, and have Odalite entirely freed by the law from the bond, or rather the shadow of the bond, that lay so heavily on her life and on his. No doubt I could easily have Odalite set free from her nominal marriage with a villain, who was forced to leave her at the altar before the benediction had been given. But to do this, Lee, I should have to take her home to Maryland, where you could not follow her for two or three years. So what good could come of hurry? Besides, we are no longer molested by the villain Anglesia. Be thankful for that blessing, Lee, and for the rest, be patient. Patient! exclaimed the youth. You have so often told me to be patient, and I have so long been patient, that I am unutterably impatient of the very word patient. I beg your pardon, Lee. I will not persecute you with the word any longer, gravely replied the elder man. "'Uncle, I beg your pardon. I do, indeed. I feel myself to be an ungrateful and most unreasonable wretch. Here you have made my burden as light as you can, by showing me all sorts of favors, and giving me all sorts of privileges, moving about from place to place to give me opportunity of being with you all. And here am I like a beast losing my temper with you. Uncle, I don't deserve that you should pardon me.' "'Say no more, Lee. Dear boy, I can understand your trials. But look on the brighter side, my lad.' The best of the business now is that Anglesia does not trouble us. He seems to have died out of our lives. Yes, but has he, uncle? He did that once before for three years, and even advertised himself as dead and buried. But he suddenly came to life again, and sprang into our midst like a very demon, to do us all the harm that he possibly could. How do we know when he will reappear to disturb us? Uncle, I do not mean to threaten, because I do not wish to sin. But I foresee that, if Anglesia ever comes in my way again, the sight of the man will goad me to crime. Oh, no, Lee, no, my dear boy, do not talk so. If ever you should be tempted, pray to the Lord, and think of Odalite. To bring yourself to evil would break her heart, Lee. I will pray that I may never set eyes on that man again, uncle. Soon after this conversation, near the last of February, the family went to Rome to witness the grand, grotesque pageantry of the carnival. Lee could not leave his ship to go with them, and so they only remained during the week of orgies, and as soon as it was over returned to Naples, where the eagle was then at anchor. 
Here they settled themselves in furnished lodgings, on the Strada di Toledo, for the spring months. It was early in May. They were all, with the exception of Lee, who was on duty on his ship, assembled in a handsome front room overlooking the Strada. The earl, whose health was so much improved that his friends hoped for its full restoration, sat in his easy chair beside a little stand, playing a game of chess with Wynnette, who had developed into a champion chess player, and was much harder to beat than ever her father had been. Mr. Force, who, suffering from a return of his malady, lay on a sofa, pale and patient, but in too much pain to read or to talk. Odalite sat near him, silently working on the silk flower embroidery she had learned to like from her mother's example. Elva and Rosemary, at a round table, were turning over a set of views left by Lee on his previous visit. Mrs. Force was opening a newspaper, received that morning, and smoothing it out, preparatory to reading it aloud to her family. Suddenly she dropped the paper, covered her face with her hands, and fell back in her chair, wailing forth the words, "'Oh, my Lord, my Lord, this is the very hardest thing to bear of all that went before.'" End of chapter 2